I'm really fastidious about fairness, about him participating in the running of the house. He has to help with everything. You know, I don't like pick up his toys for him. I don't pick up his clothes. I mean, he's five. If he can build the bloody Millennium Falcon out of Legos, <laughs> he can figure out a washing machine. <laughs> Welcome to Talking in Common, a podcast of all things lifestyle, family, relationships, well-being, kids and culture. This is not a how-to, but an insight into the lives of ourselves and others and how we all manage to get by. Hosted by myself, Kate Gadinsky, and my co-host, Sophie Panton. Take a listen and let's find out what we all have in common. A quick shout out and big thank you to today's episode sponsor, Help at Hand, bringing you life-saving education and information for your darling little humans. Welcome back to another episode, our friends. How are you today, my love, Kate? I am good. I am pumped because this is our first guest episode of season three. And I can't even believe that we are at season three. That is wild. I know, but it's good to be back on the airwaves. Are you allowed to say that with podcasts or is that just a radio terminology? No, you can totally say that because we We are. can say whatever the fuck we want. Yeah. <laughs> This is our podcast, okay? I will say what I want, as will you. (laughs) A very good guest episode at that. We'll get into that in a minute. Like, what's going on? Talk to me, girlfriend. Well, I think we should probably find out what we have in common because that's what we like to do here at Talking in Common. Funny that, right? Funny that. I'm pretty funny. What do we have in common? Um, I'm not funny, actually. (laughs) You're a dag. What we have in common is... We both finished reading a full book. Oh, my God, Yay! seriously. Go us. <laughs> I have to say I do like reading and I think we've spoken about this before. It is so much better to read before bed than watch TV and scroll through social media, better mm. you know, to help you fall asleep, etc. But often I get halfway through a book and I don't know what happens. I never finish it. So mm, I'm a serial book starter and yeah. never finisher. Like I reckon I've started – a hundred books and not finish them. Do you have a pile beside your bed? A yeah. rotating pile. Yeah. I, I quite like short stories because at least then I feel like I've accomplished something when I finish a short story rather than a whole novel. Well, this book that we did both finish was pretty hard to put down, I'll have to say. Well, it was just so easy to read. It was the new book by Clementine Ford, who is our awesome guest today. It's called How We Love and it's been described as a deeply personal exploration of love in all its forms. And I think she titles it How We Love Notes on a Life. This book also is probably very fitting for you and I and I guess where we're at in life and a lot of the conversations that we've been having, you know, exploring things like self-compassion, which this book certainly does do. That was the main thing that I took out of this book and you'll hear soon when we chat to Clementine that she sort of describes as like it was a bit of a profound moment from her that once she'd almost completed the book or once she was getting feedback about the book that that was one of the main things that people were commenting on or people were noticing throughout the way that she wrote it. But she didn't actually intend to necessarily write the book in that way. Yeah, she didn't sort of set out to write it from that aspect. So that was really interesting. To be fair, I didn't actually know that much of Clementine before that. Yeah. And I've actually really enjoyed the process of reading How We Love, getting to know her from that side that she shows in that book, and then going and researching her and finding out way more about her advocacy for women's rights and um, how passionate and outspoken she is with everything that she believes in and yeah, learning more about her kind of almost seemed like what feels a bit like a backwards sense. Well, I think if you just knew Clementine from social media, well, she just shows a different part of her, you know, Mm. a a real vulnerability that you don't always see on social media. And anyway, it was a beautiful book to read. A really soft, gentle side to her, I think. And because a lot of the topics that she does speak about on her social media, I think people find them confronting. I think people find it intimidating. But I personally believe that we really need people like Clementine in the world to create ripples in society and in the media and in everyday conversation just to drive change because without people like that, 
being brave to just say what they believe and not being worried about how they're going to be judged or perceived or what people think. We're not going to go anywhere. We're not going to evolve. I think it's really brave and I am, yeah, I just really admire people like her. So so to give a bit more of an intro on Clementine, if you don't know her, of her or you haven't read her books, she's a best-selling author, feminist writer, broadcaster and public speaker. She wrote a regular column for Daily Life in the Sydney Morning Herald for about seven years, I think. And as her popularity really soared to new heights after the release of her best-selling books, Fight Like a Girl and Boys Will Be Boys, she's now shifted to producing lots of content for herself rather than for others. And yeah, as we mentioned, uses her social media platforms to strongly advocate for what she believes in. We just had such a great thought-provoking conversation with her, ranging from motherhood to creativity, feminism, relationships, the importance of self-compassion, as we mentioned just before. Uh, We spoke about her co-parenting with her son's father and the crazy online world of social media. She was truly down to earth, honest and inspiring to talk to. And I have to say, we both left the conversation feeling a real sense of empowerment. We hope you do too. Here she is. Clementine, welcome. How are you today? Oh, it's so nice to be here. Thanks very much for having me. It's a beautiful day here in Melbourne. One of the last sunny days of the season, I'm sure. Got to lap them up now, don't we? Well, the world's going to be on fire soon, so. Yeah, that is very true. (laughs) Can we not start the conversation there? Give us a little overview of a day of the life of Clementine Ford. What's up today? Oh, I feel uh, that's one of those questions where the answer is always going to be different and no matter what I say, I'm going to sound to myself like a huge wanker. (laughs) Um, You know, I'm a freelancer and I do like a bunch of different things, a lot of which... 10 years ago, it was not classified as a job. So, I mean, social media has really changed so much of the way that we connect with people and the way that we create, you know, but I've got a five-year-old and he's with me during the weekdays. And so mostly at the moment he started school, my day starts with waking up at seven o'clock and feeling like I've got an hour and a half, an hour and three quarters even to get him ready and get to school and start the day on the right foot But because I'm just so disorganized with everything, he's always ready to go. And I'm like looking at the clock 20 minutes before school starts and still in my dressing gown. And it just, it's so stressful having to fit everyone else's schedule into your life. So I start my day like that, feeling incredibly frazzled and on the back foot. Same. (laughs) (laughs) Everything's kind of like a, a mishmash of different things. Like I do a lot of work on Instagram. I really hate the term creating content, but that's what I do. And almost being swept up in where that takes you each day is quite interesting, but can be quite overwhelming too, because then you end up trapped in these like focus holes. You know, this will be familiar to many of your listeners. I'm sure I'm one of the many 40 year old women who are undergoing a diagnosis at the moment for ADHD, which explains a lot in my life and a lot of my, the way that my brain works, but it is quite stressful when you have a job that requires you to connect with people and to create content for them because you do end up sort of almost obsessed about the things that you're focused on that day and it can be hard to kind of interrupt the circuitry in your brain. So I feel like often I'm just quite mentally exhausted. Mm, I can really relate to that. Like I'm a creative person myself and I do a bit of freelance work and contract work and have, you know, a two and a half year old that I'm trying to get used to that whole new world. And just like every day, like I just didn't realize structure actually really works much better for me. And I'm kind of learning it the hard way, the same as you. I get up so early in the morning, but every morning I'm late and I just (laughs) can't work it out. It's very frustrating. Maybe you should go to your doctor. Well, that's right. Sometimes a diagnosis and explanation just could really put things into place. Yeah. The the thing that I find that, again, probably quite relatable to anyone who's either gone through this process or is going through it is that, I mean, I don't have a formal diagnosis yet. I'd be surprised if it didn't turn out to be what I think it is. I've already got OCD, which is very closely related to ADHD. But for me, like one of the things that would provide relief for it is not even necessarily medication or anything like that. That's not really what I'm after. It's more just 
the ability to excuse yourself and forgive yourself for all of the years that you just berated yourself constantly or you felt like you were a giant piece of shit, let people down all the time, who was lazy, who didn't try hard enough. And some of that stuff comes from your own head and some of it comes from things that people have said to you through your life. Mm. Like you don't value other people's time or you don't apply yourself or all this kind of thing. You could be doing such great things if you just applied yourself more. So I feel like that's kind of, for me, been a big part of the relief of it, that there might be an explanation that doesn't involve me being just an arsehole. We actually really want to talk to you all about what we call like self-compassion, but we do preface all of our conversations with our guests by asking, what did you want to be when you were growing up? Oh, okay, great. There were two things that I wanted to be. I wanted to be either an actress um, or a lawyer. And then I didn't get the marks to get into law, didn't apply myself hard enough at school, obviously, and I didn't get the marks to get in. And then I realized that I didn't want to be a lawyer. I just wanted to play one on TV. So I wanted to <laughs> meld the two of them. I think I always thought of myself as doing something creative with no like nine to five structure, but I never thought in a million years I would be able to do a job like the one that I do now that is so rewarding and fun and and it sounds so cheesy to say all of that stuff because again I don't really know what my job is I mean I often just say that I'm a community builder and I like that I like that terminology community builder (laughs) community builder but I feel like I've landed in a job that is so immensely satisfying to me and that uses all of my skills to the best of their abilities. So one of the main reasons we were really drawn to wanting to talk to you was because Soph and I have been discussing self-compassion and the importance of this lately. And after both reading your book recently, How We Love, the tenderness and self-compassion that you portray to your younger self and, you know, even your more recent self was one of the main pickups that we took from your book. You really seem to honour your past experiences with a lot of love and appreciation. And we want to know more about this side of you and where this style of reflection came from. Well, thank you, firstly, for those beautiful words. And I'm really glad that that was one of the takeaways for you. And I've heard that from probably almost all readers who've mentioned at least one thing about the book have said something about the compassion that I have to younger selves. And I have to say that it's not something that I plotted out when I originally charted the chapters and the essays that I wanted to write. It wasn't something that I ever expected would come up as a result Mm. of writing this book. It's been for me as well, one of the most surprising and like really revelatory experiences in writing this book has been how it has completely changed the way that I view myself and the way that I view all of my younger selves as well. I'm 40 years old and I've spent almost all of my life being really mean to myself. And part of that is the conditioning that we all experience as women living in patriarchy to just hate ourselves all the time. And then part of it is just the natural kind of state of adolescence of living in self-doubt and insecurity and not really having anyone around to boost you up, to be your champion in the way that you really need to when you're that vulnerable and young and also really vulnerable to the dangers of other people. Mm. When I was growing up, I would say all of the same things that we've all said about ourselves, you know, really negative self-talk, horrible things that you would never say to another person on the street, but that I've held photographs of myself and made fun of myself and laughed at, you know, my gappy teeth and the way that my face looked and my size and my hair and all these things. And then you kind of like showcase those things to other people as well in this active sort of self-deprecation that you want everyone to know that you're in on the joke of yourself. And I found that like those things are really easy to do when you're really uncomfortable with the idea of sitting with your past selves because they bring up for you memories that you don't want to revisit or you feel ashamed of many things that might have happened to you or that you might have done and that you also feel fear, deep fear that somewhere inside you there's still that insecure person who's being judged by everyone else but none so harshly as you judge yourself. So when I was writing the book and so much of it takes place in my teenage years and then in my young adult years, I couldn't spend all of those months in those memories and trying to explore what it was that happened to me and what I learned about love and life in those times without also becoming really compassionate towards the women that I was 
in those memories with, which was myself, and really starting to understand them and give them the love that I've never given them before. And then I emerged from that experience with this very profound sense that not only were these girls and women all obviously a part of me, and I, they are me, obviously, but that they exist as completely separate beings who are worthy of respect and love and care and acknowledgement of their lives in the way that all of us are worthy of those things and deserve those things. Mm. And so that now my obligation as the carrier of those girls and women is to carry them gently and with kindness and with reverence and with gratitude. And they exist in so many other young girls and women too. Everyone, especially as teenagers, goes through this awkward stage of like, yeah, self-doubt, self-diminishing thoughts, you know, questioning, navigating the world. It's a weird world. I remembered so many things from my teen years that I'd completely forgotten about when I was like reading your book, just like certain situations I might have put myself in or certain feelings that I felt and things that I would have done to, you know, try and fit in or put myself in situations that weren't me or that looking back now, I'd go, oh my God, I cannot believe that I would have ever done that. But I guess Mm. that's a part of growing and learning. And um, I mean, I think you're incredibly brave for sharing your experiences with everyone because I think back to some of mine, I'm like, oh my God, I I just couldn't tell anyone that, but I feel like maybe I could now after reading your book. So for me, I think externalizing those selves is the best place to start because once we separate ourself from our 16 year old self and we can look at her not as a reflection of who we were but we can look at her as someone who is trying and someone who is scared a lot of the time someone who is dealing with at least one thing that makes her feel uncomfortable every day whatever it might be we look at them as being women on the cusp of adulthood who haven't yet been given all of the tools and certainly don't have all of the support and who really like are just lacking in someone to kind of hold their hand through it all. There's no way that you can look at those people without thinking all I want to do right now is give you a hug and tell you that you are doing such a good job. Keep going. Just looking after yourself mentally and emotionally, just in general, it can be a really, really scary thing. Often, you know, we talk about self-care And I think that means different things to different people, which Soph and I have kind of explored that a lot since becoming mums, but more recently realising that it's actually self-compassion that we probably need to prioritise and I guess allow ourselves to be kind to ourselves because if you're not feeling strong mentally, everything just can kind of spiral out of place pretty quickly. I completely agree. Like for me, the concept of self-care is personally I don't, relate self-care to being like having a bath or whatever and for some Mm. for some people obviously like having a bath is a place where they can relax that just kind of stresses me out but I think that the self-compassion stuff is really important being able to tread carefully and kindly around the fact that we are all just trying our best all of the time Mm. and particularly when you're a new mum I remember those early days and just feeling like you know waking up some days and thinking I can't do this but sort of more frighteningly some days thinking I don't want to do this yeah I don't want to do this anymore and we don't talk about those things and there's no space for women to have those conversations because you know we're afraid of being judged and secondly we are judged and women especially can be very bad at this and I'm not going to say women are our own worst enemies because that's just bullshit like women can be human which means they can be awful but also the patriarchy turns us against each other yeah and there's this sort of sense of like needing to prove that you're the best mother because motherhood is the one thing that you're allowed to be proud of doing well totally you're not allowed to be proud of doing anything else so I feel like those days there's you know there's so much silence because none of us want to say I'm really struggling or I really don't like my child today or I really today I'm having a day where I regretted doing it yeah not know what to do with them not necessarily want to be with them. (laughs) Yeah, and be tired of hearing them cry. Just be fucking bored. Be bored by motherhood. And we have to be able to talk about those things because otherwise we're just kind of leaving mums to do it all by themselves. And in the worst case scenarios, that can lead to some really like terrible breakdowns with the worst outcomes. This is why we thought you would be such a good person to talk 
to about this topic because the things that people do talk about is the like self-care, especially with new motherhood. You know, look after yourself, like eat well, have a bath, sleep well, all this sort of shit that's great. Like it's, you know, it's good for you. But if you're not taking care of what's actually going on in your mind and all of those thoughts that you're mentioning that can all happen within the space of 30 seconds is the stuff that we don't talk about and is the stuff that I think people are really struggling with. Mm. Yeah, and I think something else we don't talk about is this modern deficit that is particularly prevalent in white culture of just leaving women to do it all by themselves. Yeah. Yeah, there's no community approach to to child rearing. It's really egregious that we ha- we're in a situation now where in 2022 with supposedly all of the technology that we could think of up to this point at our fingertips, we still have this cultural trope that is also used as a source of humour of like the harried new mum that is tired and drooling out the side of her mouth and never gets any sleep and has one boob hanging out when she opens the door to the post person. We shouldn't be saying, oh, gosh, isn't that so true? It's just such a funny source of humour. We should be saying, why the fuck is that happening? Yes, support. Support each other. Support our mums. Support your friends. Where's the dad? The dad may not be around, and I get that, but, like, for a lot of, like, male, female, partner, two-parent families, Mm. where's the dad? Why is the dad also not experiencing that same level of sleep deprivation? Like, I just get so furious when... I hear women say things like, and I know from my own experience that you're not always completely 100% truthful about the dynamics in your domestic life because it's embarrassing to say, well, actually, it's really unequal and I feel really ashamed about that. But I also have a fucking three-week-old baby and I don't have the reserves to fight that battle right now. Yeah. I hear women say things like, well, he sleeps in the spare room. At least one of us should be getting some sleep. And I'm like, well, why is it always the fucking man? Why is he always the one that should be getting the sleep? Yeah. So can I just say as well, and this is especially important for mums out there or mums-to-be listening, that when people say things like, well, he goes to work every day. No, he goes on a break for eight hours a day where he gets to go to his workplace, wherever that might be, and he gets to not be responsible for a tiny defenseless creature where he has to run on absolutely no sleep and make sure that he's keeping that child alive and make sure that he's feeding himself and the child and make sure that he's cleaning the child and taking care of all of these things. And then he comes home and he goes to his real job, which is being a parent and also being a supportive partner. Mums work 24 hours a day. So when we say things like he needs to sleep because he's going to work, your job (laughs) is keeping a creature alive that cannot care for itself. Like that is more important than going and sitting behind a desk. I'm sorry. For some reason, it's just not recognised as hard work, though, still these days. Oh, bloody women do it every day. Women do it every day. Get over it. Anyone that knows you, Clementine, knows that you absolutely champion women's rights and you're proving that to us right now. But what was the real driver of this for you? It's an interesting question because it's one I've been thinking recently might have a different answer to the one I always thought. I didn't grow up in like a a particularly, or I certainly didn't grow up in a left-wing house. My dad is a liberal voter and my mum wasn't Australian, always used to kind of classify herself as sort of a socialist commie pinko. That's how she would put it. But it was also not like hugely politically active or anything like that. The word feminist was not really used as a sort of daily kind of vocabulary point in my house. It was, it was something I was aware of, but it's also for a long time and up until I was about 19 when I started studying gender studies, it was something that I would always say, well, of course I believe in equal rights, but I'm not a feminist because I didn't know what a feminist was. So I started studying gender studies at uni and kind of began establishing a vocabulary for all of these feelings that I'd had inside all of these years, you know, the sense of injustice and the sense of like inequality. And I met other women, which was the most important point, which was that I established a feminist group of friends. So that's kind of the broader story. But then more recently, I've been thinking as well that I did have a very profound sense of what was right and what was wrong when I was a kid, that I was sort of very deeply wedded to the idea of things being fair. 
I had an older brother and sister and I remember saying to my dad because my brother would always be excused at the end of dinner to go and do whatever it was he wanted to do while girls you get up and do the dishes mm-hmm. I remember thinking how strange it was that my dad was the kind of person who would always tell his daughters that they could grow up to do and be anything they wanted but first they had to wash the dishes mm. doesn't really make sense does it <laughs> And I remember saying, I will wash the dishes every night. If you make Toby do it every other night, if you let Charlotte and Toby alternate, I will do it every night without complaint. But I just felt it was so unfair that, you know, he was just excused every night. And my dad would push me out of the way and he'd be like, oh, just bloody go away. I'll bloody do it myself. And I just, I I felt really like bruised by it. And I know that that's a common feeling for a lot of women as well, just generally, that when we try and articulate our rights and when we try and articulate the rights of other people around us and we're sort of gaslit into thinking that we're causing a problem or that there's no issue here, that we're just seeing things that don't exist or that we're being disruptive or whatever it might be, we end up feeling incredibly bruised because actually all we're doing is saying this isn't fair. We want it to be equal. And then we're made to feel bad about that. Can we take a breather for a minute to talk about a vital part of the health and safety of our children? Yes, Help at Hand provides life-saving education for your little humans and is an amazing resource for all parents and carers. I'm pretty sure we've all been a little overwhelmed by asking Dr Google for health advice for our kids and there's a lot of confusing, conflicting advice out there. Help at Hand has created a place to educate, inform and help direct you to the resources and right professionals if and when the need arises. So no more confusion and worry. That would be nice. They deliver practical, informative, simple and fun online and in-person first aid, CPR and health education. Their trained educators will not only develop your skills and knowledge, but the best part, empower you to feel confident and calm in any emergency situation and help you to just trust your gut instincts. To find out more and book yourselves in today, head to www.helpathandeducation.com.au. Now that we're all feeling a little more calm and reassured, let's get back to the episode. So being such a strong advocate for women's rights, how do you feel about raising your son? Like, What is your approach to parenting him? I feel really scared at how technology has made things a lot less predictable when it comes to how we shape children. I try my best. I'm really fastidious about fairness, about him participating in the running of the house. He has to like put his plates in the dishwasher and stuff like that. I mean, he's five, like he can do all of those things. If he can build the bloody Millennium Falcon out of Legos, (laughs) he can figure out a washing machine. (laughs) So I, I just try and like remember that there's no magical point at which we can start teaching children things because that magical point is the day that they come out of us, however that may be, you know, that we don't suddenly talk to 16 year old kids about consent and think, right, that's when we start that conversation, Mm. you know, about consent from when, before they're even verbal. Like we have to respect our children's bodily autonomy as well. I say to my son often, I don't always say it, but often I'll try to remember to say to him, would you like a hug instead of give me a hug? And quite often he'll say, no, thank you. Please give me a hug. (laughs) It breaks my heart because of course I just want to like cuddle him and like merge him back into my body at all times. But, you know, then I say, that's okay. Good for you. And my sadness in the moment, I mean, there's going to be like millions of hugs from my son, I'm sure, over our life, but my sadness in the moment of being rejected or whatever pales in comparison to the confidence that he has to tell me, his mother, no, thank you, I don't Mm. want a hug right now. And I'm not saying that that will protect him. That's not like a force field that wraps around him that means that he will never, ever be subject to harm. But... I'm instilling in him from a really young age the confidence not only to express his own boundaries but to respect other people's boundaries and for that to be a normal language for him. Such a good point and such an important, consistent message. I always try to practice with my daughter not like forcing her to kiss or hug. No, strangers is not the right (laughs) word, but like relatives or friends. Yeah, she'll do it when she's ready. And have her feelings validated and acknowledged that Mm. she's not going to be called troublesome or disruptive or being like... Yeah, being told off that she's naughty if she doesn't do stuff like that. 
and it's actually, I mean, you, you sort of um, laughed at saying strangers before, but, but when you think about it, think about the number of times that a child might be meeting someone for the first time and they're like, give me a hug. They often are strangers to them really, aren't they? Exactly. And out of embarrassment or out of a weird kind of 1980s conditioning, if you're talking about parents now, not to be awkward or rock the boat or insult people, even if we feel conflicted about it, we're more likely to kind of weirdly offer up our child for that hug as a way to smooth out the social glue. Yeah. Clementine, would you say that like I've read like a lot of articles and things about you that label you things like, you know, a fearless advocate. Would you say that you're fearless or just your passion for voicing your opinion and what belie- and what you believe in just overrides the fear? I think that I am, hmm. when I started as a public writer, I was 25 years old and the social media landscape was beginning but it was you know Facebook had only just started being accessible to the public we didn't have Twitter yet we didn't have Instagram like really nothing beyond Facebook and Tumblr and internet was still quite slow my internet's still slow (laughs) yeah (laughs) I feel like I started with the passion and confidence of a 25 year old who was driven by, you know, partly by a sense of justice and also partly by the arrogance of youth. Nothing I say could ever be wrong. Mm -hmm. And almost sort of like a delight in, you know, and I I started writing for a newspaper in Adelaide, a delight in thinking that I was shocking the conservative elderly kind of readership, which, which was all very helpful because it meant that I, all of those things conspired to not only kind of keep propelling me along thinking oh yep I'm getting I'm upsetting them I must be doing something right but also I was really shielded because of the time from being too terribly trolled the way that I would be later on when I'd become a lot more experienced when I'd had a bit more exposure to that level of abuse under my belt where I was also older and smarter and able to make better choices about things which doesn't mean I'm always making the best choices but I feel like the difference between me at 25 and me at 40 is not necessarily that my fearlessness, if you want to call it that, has changed, but that my ability to sift through what is an important fight to have yeah. has become better. I don't always have the right fight still. but Pick your battles sometimes. I'm better at picking a better battle. I'm smarter at articulating a response to it. And I'm, I just have 15 years more experience of, of work and writing and researching. So I'm, you know, more of an expert in the field. But whether or not that's fearlessness or just determination, I mean, we don't call men fearless, do we? We call them skilled. So I found it interesting when I was reading those sort of titles about someone like you. I was like, hmm. <laughs> Uh, but you know to reassure as well your listeners I'm afraid of lots of things I'm really really scared of flying (laughs) I'm really scared of the dark I'm actually really scared of the dark too and I'm (laughs) glad you just said that because I feel a bit insecure about it sometimes at night I'll need to get up to go to the toilet I'm like I just I get I don't know this sense of it's so weird that we kind of pathologize these fears in adults as if somehow to like have natural fears of things like for example like the dark things you can't see and there's lots of reasons p.s that women would be afraid of the dark (laughs) in their own home um that we're like oh well you're being like a child you know you're being such a baby like I never say to my son stop being a baby I never say like grow up or be a big boy or any of that stuff because it's so toxic particularly when you're dealing with boys but also It's very human to have fears and we need to be compassionate to that. You can't just sort of like say, well, get over it. That's which is what my, my dad used to do to me was, would say like, oh, well, just don't, if I go to him and say I'm having these really, you know, the OCD, like really scary thoughts or whatever. Oh, well, just don't think about it. (laughs) Okay, dad, I'll just stop thinking about it. (laughs) That's really helpful. I'll stop my thoughts. It's another quite like sexist thing to the, the um, connection of like being scared of the dark, like being a, a baby, yeah. Yeah, or like a, yeah, you know, only, only girls are scared of the dark. Like, 
Clem, you, you lost your own mother far too young. And I guess what I want to ask is, was there a sense of grief involved in having your own child and becoming a mother without having your mum around? Absolutely. It's really, really hard to be a motherless mother. And I feel, you know, when I was, when my baby was, when my son was a baby, I had to really kind of wrestle with my resentment. It wasn't overwhelming, but, you know, when I was in mum's groups and they would complain about their mums interfering or they'd complain about mother-in-laws, you know, God forbid wanting to help with their child, even if it wasn't always in the most helpful or supportive of ways. I mean, I'd have to really remind myself, look, everyone's experience is informed by their own experience. Everyone's experience of motherhood is informed by their own experience of life. And if you haven't lost your mother, you don't know how much you would like, you know, how much you'd give to have your mother come over and annoy you all day. Mm and tell you what you're doing wrong with the baby. <laughs> but we can't, I also would say to myself, like, you, you know, I'd remind myself, you can't live, you can feel some private feelings of grief about it, but you can't blame other people for, like, not respecting your experience or whatever because, of course, like, we're all going through our own motherhood journey. And I feel like, you know, something that's been really helpful for me is to, is to think really philosophically about it, that my mother would have, made a much better grandmother than she was a mum. And it wasn't that she wasn't a good mum. She was a very, like, incredible woman in many ways. But she had three children in the late 70s and early 80s. She was a single mum when she met my dad. Um, Didn't come from money or wealth or privilege. You know, left school when she was 13. Brilliant woman with unrealised ambitions. And she had three kids who she was probably experiencing postnatal depression with. She was definitely like had PTSD in her life from childhood stuff. She was completely unsupported. Mm. So I feel like all of the, the love that she could have given a grandchild would have been a way to express that love without the terrifying weight of motherhood that we all feel. Um, so I feel a lot of grief about the fact that she missed out on that and that she, my son would have like adored her. Yeah. But at the same time, philosophically, I have to think about how life pans out and the, the fact my mother dying was such a huge part of my life and it completely deviated where my life went to. It changed and informed all of the work that I do. Um, it put me literally indirectly in a spot where I met my son's dad at a music festival in 2012 and then five years later, randomly, in the most random of incidents, given how, like, many billions and billions and billions of possibilities of children there are, I ended up pregnant with my son. So there's no world in which she could have been alive and he could have been alive too. So you trade one for the other. It's a good way to look at it. I read something um, because I I lost my father about a year ago and I was obviously very different to your experience, but I was, you know, doing a lot of research on grief because grief is, as you know, horrible, fucked. (laughs) And um, I'm sorry to hear about your dad. Oh, thank you. There is a terminology called um, post-traumatic growth after you experience a really like strong uh, well, experience grief. Anyway, I'm not saying I feel that, but I just never, ever heard of that before, like actually coming out that other side and actually really growing as a person and almost learning something from the death of a loved one. I think it's a really great way to look at loss because that immediate period after losing someone, as you know, is so raw and so painful and you can't, you can't prioritise that kind of thing then because you just need to be able to feel your feelings. And sometimes that involves going to the pub and being hysterically funny in the life of the party because actually you're just like so broken inside that that's the only way that you can feel anything in the moment. Um, and then as the, as the waves, as the kind of like storm of grief recedes and the beach becomes a bit calmer again, you can start looking around and thinking what it was that you gained from having that person in your life. You can be a little bit more philosophical about the fact that all life begins and ends at some point. And 
you can think about what it was that you learned from having that relationship. And you can also find comfort in feeling sad about them. Like I feel now one of the most precious things that I have is the sadness that I feel about my mum not being here because it means that her life meant something. Mm. So talk to us a little bit about the combination of your work and having a small little baby at home. At the time that you had your little boy, like in the first couple of months, you had dived back into work pretty quickly. You were writing, you even released a new book at that time. What made you juggle all of that? I mean, the basic answer is just necessity. I was the only one working in the house and I my job could be done from anywhere. And so I needed to keep making money. I also had my book came out seven weeks after my son was born. And that was mm. when we went on book tour. So I knew that at most I was only going to get seven weeks off. Far out. I would walk around with him in the carrier during his nap time and I would type articles out on my phone because I was still writing two articles a week and still doing various things for different places and book-related stuff. But at the same time, I think I also needed to keep working because I was so overwhelmed mm. by what it suddenly meant to be in charge of this baby. And the only way that I understood how to be was to keep producing yeah. work. This is going to sound quite self-aggrandizing and I don't mean it to, but I don't know that I could do it differently. I find it so hard to switch off. And, you know, it took me so long to kind of fall in love with my son that I still think about those early days as just being the baby. Yeah. It's kind of like squalling thing that sat, you know, like in a blob on my lap. Mm. I think I would have fallen into like a real pit of anxiety. I had really bad prenatal anxiety when I was pregnant that I, I worried would get worse when the baby arrived. But I think because I could then just be so active Part of what made me so anxious when I was pregnant was that I didn't have anything to do with this thing that was growing inside me. I knew that this like responsibility was coming, but I couldn't get started to actually doing it. And I really hate sitting there and twiddling my thumbs. So yeah, I think I would probably do it all exactly the same. Mm. I remember um, reading that you had done like a Facebook post or something at the time to just sort of like reiterating to, you know, the people that follow you that you don't have it all together, like that you weren't sort of setting <laughs> the wrong impression to other young mums, like looking at you going, how the fuck is she doing it? Like seven weeks old, she's just released a book. Yeah, I remember that one and I I was sitting in the, the food court of the Emporium in Melbourne and, you know, it was kind of like physically leaking in my pants because I was I wore tanner pads for like the first eight months of my child's life because I you know I had a birth injury and I had really terrible pelvic floor recovery mm. I have tried as well to speak really openly and honestly about that stuff too because I know so many of us walk around feeling ashamed of it and feeling like we have to be really quiet about these you know these terrible impacts that birth can have on our body and why it's all part of like concealing the reality of it and you know not wanting to make people think nasty things about us or but that's what birth is and that's what birth does to a lot of us and it's absolutely fucked that we don't have more comprehensive health care and funding directed towards fixing our bodies when they're harmed during birth anyway mm. that's a separate issue even just education with what your bodies go through then we're just expected to kind of bounce back and just look after a baby and just get on with our lives it's like hang on look what your body did when you were growing a baby and then now the baby's out you're just expected to be back to normal like get rid of the baby weight you lazy bitch you know yeah. <laughs> i'm going to digress just a little bit here cuz i really want to hear a little bit about your experience with co-parenting it seems like you have worked out a good rhythm and that's purely from reading your book but how does it play out for you it's good yeah it was quite tricky at the beginning even the best kind of relationship breakdowns still have some element of hurt. Otherwise, why were you together in the first place, right? Yeah. Mm. So for a while, it was really not great. And bad behaviour on both sides, mean things said by both people. But then over time, you know, we were able to kind of move past that and really centre our son's needs. And I feel like in our own ways, we've both worked really hard at making a functional family with separated parents that still very much feels like a family you know we do things together quite often we'll go to 
have lunch at the pub on the weekends. So I approach it as he is still very much a part of my family. And I'm also lucky that I can have that dynamic because there was nothing that made me fearful for my life. It wasn't a case of an abusive relationship or anything like that. Just didn't work work out in that romantic way. So it's been work, but like all relationships require work. And just because we're not in a romantic relationship doesn't mean that it's any easier or harder than, you know, any other relationship that requires constant care and acceptance that you can be angry with each other at points, but you ha- you're sort of bound together forever, really. It's just nice for um, people in similar situations to hear other people's stories, I think, because it's another thing that people probably, you know, are a little bit of afraid to be honest about because they're, for whatever reason, ashamed or embarrassed or whatever. I think it's really possible for people to have very functional, supportive co-parenting relationships, but it does require effort from both sides and it requires a maturity from both sides. Maybe not initially, like there's always going to be immature behaviour in the beginning, I think, but it requires like basically both people to say, look, the most important person or people in this scenario are our children. So we need to have a respectful relationship with each other that is kind and friendly as well for their benefit. And the problem is that often one of the reasons why women want to leave is not even necessarily because of fear, but just because they're not being respected and they're not being supported and they are dealing with childish behaviour. I can say that, that it's entirely possible for that reality to exist and I, and I wish more people had that. But I also can understand that for some people it will make things harder if I leave because then I'll have to deal with with him being, you know, aggressive or snipey or just not wanting to parent, basically, or that they try and have that relationship and they just dealing with someone really toxic for the rest of their life. The other thing that I would love to impart on younger women in particular, especially if they haven't had a baby and they think they might want to, is that don't prioritise finding the guy that you think is so hot or that you love so much, you're so attracted to, or you think you just love young dream and you're going to spend the rest of your life together because probably you're not, Mm. or at the very least your feelings for that person will change. You are not ever going to feel for the rest of your life that dizzying romance that you feel when you look at him at 25 or 30 or whatever. And especially once you have a, a baby, as you two both know, your concept of who you are changes so profoundly your relational idea of yourself to other people changes. The most important person in your life is that child and for a long time no one else can get a look in because you just actually don't even acknowledge them because your job is to protect this defenseless creature. And so if you think that having a baby with some guy that you love is going to be just adding a person for you to both love together, then you're making a big mistake because the dynamic of that trio of lovers will change so drastically and in ways that you can't predict and you have to be prepared for. But the best thing you can do is choose to have a baby with someone who you know you can parent with for the rest of your life, whether or not you're sleeping in the same house. Babies add a whole new level of pressure, right, <laughs> to a yeah. relationship. And is very good advice and very real and honest advice. I'm loving everything that you're saying and completely agree. I think it's important to remind people of that. To be fair, we should let you go, but we also still have a really long list of stuff that we would love to chat to you about. I just want to ask you one last question. What are you putting your energy into right now? What are your priorities at this moment in your life? Do you mean work-wise or just generally as a 40-year-old woman? You tell me. So work-wise, I'm putting together a pitch for what I hope will be my next book, but I'm not ready to talk about what that pitch is yet, but I'm excited and terrified by the prospect of writing another book. Ooh. I'm excited. <laughs> I'm excited. <laughs> yeah. So there's a couple of other like work things on the boil that I'm also keen to get going. But just generally in my life, I think what I'm putting my energy into is really nurturing the relationships that I have with my friends and my loved ones, nurturing the time that I have with my son, even though I'm definitely not always interested in being the mother of a small child. Again, like I have days where I'm like, I just don't, I can't be fucked doing this job today, (laughs) but I'm really trying to like grow a good human 
and I'm working on my patience. That, that nurturing thing, it's so important for us to look at the people who hold us through our life, who are our friends, who we don't like have necessarily a, a physical romantic relationship with, but that, that our relationships with are extremely romantic in that we love each other and that we witness each other. And to understand that they require as much attention and time and care as people who might be our partner. Mm, yeah. You know, I, I hear from a lot of women who say that they would love to have friends. I'm always talking about how important women friends are. And they're like, I'd love to have women friends, but I don't know where to find them or I just can't find my people or whatever it is. And I, I think it's really good to remember that you don't just like walk into a bar and pick up a friend and then that's it. Boom, you're like friends doing everything together in the way that sometimes that can be how a relationship kind of unfolds. Mm where being in a romantic physical relationship with someone can often provide elements of activities or like superficial behaviours with each other that mask the fact that there's not really anything very deep there. You just happen to sleep together and go out to dinner sometimes, you know, or like watch TV together, but there's not really any depth. Whereas a friendship, a really like profound friendship, you can't escape from the fact that you need to connect on a really deep level. Yeah. And we need to date our friends in the same way that we date our romantic lovers, by which I mean we need to like go out to dinner with them, like one-on-one or like three people or whatever. But like we need to put time and effort into respecting those friendships and those relationships and growing them and valuing them in the same way that we do our other kind of, uh, you know, like the people that we might sleep with because they're not secondary in our life. They're not like our backup people that we hang out with when our partner's busy or whatever. There are people who will be with us until the end. So we need to respect them in that way. That's so true. That's such great advice. Yeah. Can't underestimate friendship. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us and for being the amazing woman that you are and for all the great work that you do. It's been our absolute pleasure to have you here and have this conversation with us. Thank you. So nice to chat to you both. Thank you. That's it for today. Make sure you head to incommonprojects.com.au for the show notes. Hit subscribe on your podcast app and follow us on Instagram at Talking In Common. Or you can check out our Facebook page, which is also Talking In Common. Have a lovely day and as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.